Greetings, Hooniverse, because that's the thing now. Welcome to Under Consultation, a podcast in search of a theme right now, because this has got nothing to do with video games or indeed video game television, which will be our remits moving forwards into 2024. However, it is November, and if you're one of our Patreons, it is the 23rd of November, which this year is a particularly special year, because we are looking at the 60th anniversary of a British television legend. Not the TV coverage of the assassination of JFK. It is, of course, Doctor Who. But I am not taking this journey through time and space by myself. I have a faithful companion. I have a tin dog. (laughs) Actually, do you know what? Out of all the Doctor Who episodes, I think that best describes me. I am the amazing Cliff. Hello all. Welcome aboard. Now, for those of you that have been with us a while, you may have gathered I'm a bit of a Doctor Who fan. Just to give a a little bit of background. (laughs) Just a smidge. Just a tiny bit. I mean, my fandom started in the 1980s. My first Doctor was technically Colin Baker. I remember a tiny bit of Peter Davison, but most of my memory is actually the Sylvester McCoy era, the three years that, that he had. And I've drifted away from fandom the same way I've drifted away from a lot of fandoms, because fandoms can be incredibly toxic, but I've always been a fan of Doctor Who. Mm. And I'm not one of these people that's like, oh, well, that's not for me, therefore I must bury it. I'm just a case of, well, that's not for me, but as long as someone is enjoying it and liking it. Like, not all of New Who is for me. Uh, I actually think the first Christopher Eccleston episode is terrible. And I'm aware that at the time when I said that, I got very dirty looks from a lot of people, but I just don't think it was good. I think it got better as it went along. It got worse. It got better. Nothing is perfect, but I'm still a fan of Doctor Who, a massive fan of Doctor Who. I'm massively excited for this year, for all the things we've got coming out, for the future of the series and what it may be, even if I don't like it. I'm excited because it's continuing. So I'm an old fart. I started in the 80s. Cliff, when did you start with Doctor Who? Well, mine, obviously, being a little bit younger than you, came from my friend Daniel. Now, I I watched a couple of Doctor Who episodes around this time, around 93, where we're going to be covering this episode. But the major thing for me was my friend Daniel, and he was so excited, being a big Doctor Who fan, for the Doctor Who movie. So in 96, we were about 10 years old, and he was so, so excited for that movie that I then was dragged into that excitement. I am a big science fiction fan. My fandom very much lines on the dark side. See what I did there. But it's that element of that his excitement brought me into Doctor Who and when I used to go for sleepovers over his that he used to have them taped like Genesis of the Daleks always remember he had that taped he had um uh, Sea Devils uh, Sea Devils episode on tape with um Delgado as the uh, master and and that's one that I remember when I was older went out and bought as well so I think that these episodes because of his fandom into it and then later on in school my friend Kyle who he was a big Doctor Who fan as well I mean huge Doctor Who fan we went and visited Colin Baker um, uh, at a convention and stuff like that oh he didn't just turn up at his house no he didn't turn up at his house (laughs) but I went with him for that you know he's a huge Doctor Who fan so he used to definitely not burn me off uh, versions of his DVDs he definitely lent me them Uh, but he would he would go oh you need to watch this episode you need to watch this episode you need to watch this episode because at the time I was very much into Tenant uh, and the sort of new Doctor Who I think my sort of thing with Doctor Who even though I'm I wouldn't ever see myself as an Uber fan it is very very important to me I have a TARDIS 
up on my shelf up there. Uh, it is really important series to me, but I, I never say I'm a huge Doctor Who fan because there's plenty of people like Ash out there that know a lot more than I do. <laughs> there are a lot of people that know a lot more than me, and that is actually something I will just say now is, like, I've got a lot of notes that I refer to. I've got a lot of books. I've got, uh, there's a Doctor Who yearbook here. I've got old issues of Doctor Who magazine I've gone back to. I've got various interviews and other bits and pieces. If I leave something out... <laughs> on today's episode it's because i don't want this to be five hours and there are plenty of dedicated doctor who podcasts out there so feel free to well actually me on this in twitter or the comments but i will probably just go cool <laughs> <laughs> now it's the 60th anniversary of doctor who there are a number of specials due to air over this period on either bbc iplayer or disney plus depending on where you are in the world or you know torrents i don't know you do you but there's also been celebrations in previous years for the 50th anniversary we had the day of the doctor a multi-doctor story which not only aired on the bbc but also in cinemas that was really cool for the 20th anniversary 1983 we had the five doctors the five doctors is a great story cliff wouldn't you like to talk about the five doctors yes please come now because after watching what we are going to be covering i went back and watched the five doctors and it's such a lovely 90-minute episode. Obviously, we could sit here and talk about how Tom Baker really wasn't involved and really didn't want to do it and possibly really only came back for the episode we are about to cover. However, it was so lovely. Why can't we do this? Can we just do the five Doctors? But we kind of given the game away because if we're not talking about the day of the Doctor, we're not talking about the five Doctors, we're not talking about the three Doctors, there is only one real anniversary story-ish special we can talk about, and that is the Children in Need sketch from 1993, the 30th anniversary of Doctor Who, Dimensions in Time. Bollocks. Starting with Children in Need. A new dimension in television is coming at you on BBC One. A third dimension that will bring you-know-who right into your home for a special two-part adventure. With David Bellamy, you come face-to-face with some of nature's wildest beasts. You'll feel you're on stage with the bands in Top of the Pops... Last at sea, with the Blue Peter crew, you'll need to buy a pair of these 3D glasses, available in shops now. It was part of an entire season of programming that was going to be in 3D, and all of it was tied around Children in Need in raising money for the British telethon charity Children in Need. Uh, we also had episodes of Top of the Pops, there were also nature documentaries, there was also episodes of Tomorrow's World going into how the 3D effect worked, which I will try and explain later, badly, <laughs> no doubt. Now, we also had number one at the box office. We also had a number one at the charts. It was Meatloaf. It was um, Adam's Family Values. We talked about those. Go back to season, I think, two of Games Master. Yeah, it'd be season two. We talked a lot about Meatloaf. Meatloaf was very much in our vicinity at that time. But also, this was an interesting time to be a Doctor Who fan because the show had been cancelled in 1989. Uh, well, it, it had been put on hiatus. <laughs> in, the, in the freezer. It's not that they weren't going to do another series, they just hadn't said they were, although pretty much everyone involved realised 
it wasn't going to happen. The Good Doctor did not have a lot of friends at the BBC. Michael Gray didn't like him. A lot of the television controllers didn't like him. Mm. They liked getting money from the fans. You know, the video range took off. Uh, Virgin Publishing gained the license for the books and we had the series of books uh, The New Adventures of Doctor Who which featured Sylvester McCoy and ran all the way up until the BBC took the book license back around the time the TV movie came out with Paul McGann in 1996. Mm -hmm. But as we approached the anniversary year of 1993 there were some changes taking place. You'd had American companies making overtures at the BBC to produce Doctor Who. We talked about it in Games Master when the footage of the Spider Dalek was shown as part of uh, the Games Master news section. But even within the BBC, things changed when Alan Yentob became the controller of BBC One. He'd previously been the controller of BBC Two. He was a fan of science fiction. Mm. He was a friend of the Doctor. He didn't hate it. He was aware of its importance in BBC heritage. He was aware of its importance to its fans and how big it had been and could be a gap. So suddenly you go from being an entirely Doctor Who hostile organisation to having some friends in relatively high places. You also have the one-time producer of Doctor Who, John Nathan Turner, who was there until the bitter end and actually didn't officially step down from that role until 1990. Oh, wow. He decided late in 1992 to make some overtures to the BBC himself about producing a special episode for the 30th anniversary that was coming up. However, what he was unaware of is there was already plans for a 30th anniversary special, something that was going by the working title of The Dark Dimension. Now, this is a podcast episode in itself, and it's something that has been covered by many uh, articles, magazines, books, podcasts, YouTube videos, all with varying degrees of accuracy. But the gist of it was BBC television weren't interested. BBC Enterprises mm. were. And Tom Baker himself was interested in being the Doctor again. In fact, some say that this is how it started, was Tom Baker went to the BBC going, I want to play the Doctor again, and I'd like Douglas Adams to write it. Oh, Douglas Adams. Douglas Adams said no, allegedly. I'll pepper a lot of allegedly's in this and I'll get to why towards the end. But the idea moved forward and a script was written by an individual called Adrian Rigglesford, which is a name I will get to again shortly. And the story he wrote prominently featured the fourth Doctor. The fourth Doctor was the main Doctor. And the idea is that the Doctor never regenerated from being Tom Baker as the fourth Doctor. And so he just got old. And that explains why Tom Baker looks older in the story. Ah, so what is it? You're completely reimagining. So it's almost like a what happens with Peter Davidson after Tom, that, that never happened. Exactly. Although the successive Doctors of Peter Davidson, Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy would have appeared appeared in the story as well as precursor John Pertwee but in kind of ghost forms alternate dimensions you also had companions appearing as different versions of themselves uh, reimagined Daleks reimagined Cybermen but the idea was that it was going to be produced as a direct to video special 90 minute episode that would have been so much better <laughs> well yes and no the problems were manifold one of which is all of the doctors other than Tom Baker were not happy oh. because they were kind of reduced to relatively short amount of time. Like 50% of the on-screen time was all Tom Baker and the other 50% was to be split between four other actors. Ah. <laughs> there was a bit involving Colin Baker's doctor that was going to involve a trial. That's a bit even harsher point. Poor Colin. He always gets it in the neck, doesn't he? <laughs> The thing is, is Colin Baker said, hey, I spent my entire last season being on trial 
And the response from the production team at that point were, well, that's okay. We'll just swap your scenes with Peter Davison's and Peter Davison will be on trial. At which point Colin went, wow, it's really nice to know we are so integral to the plot that our scenes can be so easily interchanged. (laughs) Oh, poor Colin. But despite all this mess going on, and a script being written by someone that, despite his claims, was a relative unknown when it came to script writing. Things moved forward and it was actually officially announced that this is a production that was happening. This is something where classic Doctor Who director Graham Harper had been assigned to it, where where casting calls had started to go out, where people were being negotiated with, where special effects tests were being done, where the Jim Henson Creature Workshop was working on a new Cyberman. And up to three weeks of test footage and location scouting was shot, allegedly. And this is where a lot of the problems of covering the Dark Dimension comes from, is that a script does exist and has been adapted into fan audio and video productions. But one of the key figures involved in this, Adrian Rigglesford, is kind of a liar, kind of a thief. Actually, I don't need to say kind of. He is a liar. He is a thief. He faked a lost interview with Stanley Kubrick that was published posthumously in the TV Times and came to the attention of the Kubrick estate who went, yeah, this interview never happened. Because one, he doesn't do interviews on set. Mm. Two, this interview allegedly took place during the filming of Eyes Wide Shut, where he definitely didn't give any interviews. (laughs) And three, this does not sound like Stanley Kubrick and... For the guy that uh, published a news article on this, he should know he'd worked with Kubrick for about 20 years. So what, did he get a stand-in to pretend to be Kubrick? No, he just made it up. He just literally wrote... (laughs) he He just literally wrote an interview and claimed, oh, I transcribed this from a tape that I made... X years ago. No. It does put a lot of the claims he made earlier into question, including some of his published Doctor Who factual books, which oh, no. contained many last quotes and interviews with actors from Doctor Who that were no longer with us, that's including cool. William Hartnell. Oh, that's really super not cool. It gets even better. He actually ended up doing jail time in the 2000s. <laughs> Would it be fraud? (laughs) No, it would just be out-and-out theft. He uh, stole tens of thousands of photographs from the Daily Mail photo library and sold them all. He's he's a piece of work. (laughs) Maybe, okay, I take it back. What we did get in the end was so much better. (laughs) But it means the problem is, is that whenever we look back at the Dark Dimension now, we can look at what, say, Colin Baker, Sylvester McCoy, Peter Davison, and on some level Tom Baker says, and go, well, okay, their side, apart from the ravages of time, is probably fairly accurate. We mm-hmm. can look at what Graham Harper said and his statements about the test footage being shot and this, that, and the other, and we can say, well, okay, that is likely true. Mm-hmm. However, the state of the script, the people who may or may not have been attached, whether Brian Blessed or Rick Mayo or someone else was meant to be in it to play the villain. All of that is just a big old question mark and full of allegedly. But anyway, that project was going on and was active, and it's why John Nathan Turner, his idea was just shut down. So then we come to an entirely separate plan to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Doctor Who, and this is what we're here to now talk about, which is Children in Need. Now, Children in Need has had a history with Doctor Who. The Five Doctors, which you watched, mm-hmm. that was originally aired as part of Children in Need in 1983. Was it really? They they took up 90 minutes of Do- uh, Children in Need for that. That's brilliant. Yeah. Hello, Terry. Very nice to see you. 
Great heavens, it's the doctor. Indeed. I've only just seen you. Yes, I've missed it. And the four others. That's right. Yes. How'd you get on, all five of you? Oh, very well, very well. No, it was a great experience. No clash of Time Lord egos or anything? No, no, not at all, not at all. Of course, we all thought we were the best, you know. Of course. Apart from that, there was no problem No comments, I noticed, about your ridiculous outfit. That. No, 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 no. It's not, is it that ridiculous? No, In no. fact, you're not with us, are you, being a Time Lord? No, no, Lord. at this very moment, I'm... Uh, up in a jumbo jet somewhere on my way to Chicago. There you go now. That's right. What are you going to Chicago for? Oh, just two days for a Doctor Who convention. It's a jet-setting life, you know, <sighs> Doctor Who. I mean, it, it was a very, very different thing back in 1983, but it wow. aired as part of the telethon. So good. <laughs> Why can't we be doing this? <laughs> And so Nick Handel, who was working with BBC Features and was one of the organisers of Children in Need in 1993, approached John Nathan Turner around May of 1993 to say, can we maybe just do a five-minute skit or sketch to recognise his 30th anniversary? And also, it would be a really, really, really good vehicle for our whole 3D gimmick that we're doing for Children in Need this year. Now, the 3D gimmick was not your standard red-blue. It was not your modern um, 3D that's used still in mm -hmm. some films and cinemas. It was an effect called the Pulfrich effect, which is actually a really cool effect, apart from the fact it's very short-lived. Your brain will cancel it out within 30 minutes. So you can only use it on short films or short programmes, and it's why nothing longer was done with it on the BBC. Top of the Pops was about its limit. Mm -hmm. What it does is it takes advantage of the fact that your eye processes dark images slightly slower than it processes light images. So by putting a dark lens, and you can still do this now with videos processed this way with just half a pair of sunglasses, Mm -hmm. It basically adds extra depth to a picture and things appear further in the foreground or background. And it works. It works really quite well. Does it work as well as the modern stereographic 3D effects? No. Does it work as well as my Nintendo 3DS? <laughs> no. It has some limitations, but it does work. And it works with the distinct advantage that people without the glasses can watch the image and it looks perfectly normal. Because that's the problem. As somebody with a lazy eye, that's the issue that I've always had with anything 3D. If I'm going to watch it, it will give me a splitting migraine. So in anything traditional 3D, be that the Ratatouille ride in Disneyland Paris, be that my wife getting me tickets to go and see... Uh, a Pirates of the Caribbean movie, I can't remember which one it was, and sit in front row every time it's giving me a hang uh, almost a hangover headache. Yet, this is lovely because I can actually enjoy it as well. It doesn't mean that I have to sit there in pure agony. Ironically, the guy that discovered this entire effect, Polfrich, couldn't actually use it himself as a cataract had rendered him blind in one eye. <laughs> oh, no. oh, no, really? <laughs> The irony of that. Irony. Irony. I get it. <laughs> need to label it joke, just joke. as we discussed before. Have to, we have to label things as a joke. <laughs> but in addition to the limitation of kind of like a 30-minute time limit before the effect was rendered null and void, the other issue is the entire thing relied on the camera moving, which is why, and it's especially noticeable in the Doctor Who special we're going to discuss, <laughs> the camera is virtually always moving it's mm -hmm. spinning it's panning it's zooming there are objects very deliberately placed <laughs> in the foreground to make the 3d effect work but it does work and i will i will give it credit for that that i watched dimensions in time yesterday 
on the big TV downstairs mm-hmm. with half a pair of sunglasses over my eyes. <laughs> and despite the fact that it is moderate potato quality, because this is a video recording off air from 1993, mm-hmm. it worked. The 3D worked. And I was dead impressed by that. I, I remember I sent you the uh, documentary on, tom- uh, on Tomorrow's World of them uh, demonstrating how it works. Now, it, it was saying about how the camera had to move with them. Now, there's a couple of mi- moments of this where people give very weird arm movements. And it's, I think Sylvester McCoy does one towards the end where it's like, and it's because the camera's sort of moving around them. But it was saying that if it moves from left to right, it works. But any images moving from right to left do not because obviously your left eye has to be the one picking up on it first. I think it was saying, but it was so funny because especially in that documentary, they were literally looking at the props and Sylvester McCoy's like, usually we don't have anything in shots because obviously we're the central focus, but this, we have to have loads of little things in front of us to make sure that the 3D effect is working. Obviously, for somebody that can see the 3D, obviously it makes you go, Oh, yeah, there is a lot of stuff in the foreground. They place things in front of you, whereas before normally that's all clear so you can be seen. But they give depth of field. All right, so the props are there, prominently in front. Yes, they're upstaging you. Get away, prop. (laughs) Maybe actors don't like that. Despite having had his own plan shot down, Nathan Turner was approached and he said no. (laughs) Oh. But then his agent said yes, because his agent was like, no, it's your chance to say goodbye to Doctor Who. You know, your chance to do it on your terms. And also the agent's like, I've not had a commission in a good few years. (laughs) Can I please have those lovely agent fees? (laughs) However, there was already a fly in the ointment in that Handel didn't just want John Nathan Turner to produce this. He wanted him to write it. John Nathan Turner was not a script writer. He was not really a writer full stop, despite the fact that he had recently started giving lectures on screenwriting. What, in universities? Yeah, like, I guess, those those who can't teach. <laughs> those who can't do teach. <laughs> and JNT knew that his capacity on this was pretty low. So instead, he turned to a fairly enthusiastic student called David Roden, who was also an avid Doctor Who fan. So he had some of the inbuilt lore. So here we are. We're now May 1993. The anniversary is like five, six months away. Clock is ticking. It's a children in need special. So the first thing we're going to do is develop a story called Destination Holocaust. Because when you think of children in need... no! This was going to be a much smaller kind of like (laughs) cast. It was just going to be the Seventh Doctor and the Brigadier and the Cybermen and basically would involve the Doctor and the Brigadier on their way to a unit function reunion. They get ambushed by Cybermen and they get basically, it's kind of like Assault on Precinct 13, but in a church. So the Cybermen would be kind of bearing down on them. That story didn't move forward for a number of reasons. One of which is it was going to be quite expensive. Mm. Two, there'd be no consideration for the 3D effect put into the script. Three, and this is unwritten, but I imagine is true, Children in Need didn't want the word Holocaust anywhere near their product. Yeah, that that's a word you want to stay well clear of. 
But the goalposts had shifted. We had the need for it to be suitable for children in need. We had the need for it to be in 3D. And also, children in need wanted them to involve all of the surviving doctors. That in itself is a big enough ask. Because as we already heard when we talked briefly about the Dark Dimension earlier, getting all the doctors on the same page when it came to screen time, that's not not an easy ask, not an easy thing. But how do we make it even more complicated than that? (laughs) Well, we want you to involve EastEnders. Do you think that's because of set, or do you think that's just because it gives them something to do during Children in Need as well? I mean, allegedly, it was JNT, John Nathan Turner, that suggested EastEnders. However, I have seen accounts that have said that the EastEnders connection was forced on him by Handel, or rather, it was made so it looked like it was his idea, but actually, it wasn't. There's a lot of uncertainty there because even JNT has given multiple accounts over the years, including in his own book. Whilst all this is going on, via some clever political manipulation and also the inability to budget, the previously mentioned Dark Dimensions is now dead in the water. That, unsurprisingly, never happens. We never saw it. So now this is the only episode of Doctor Who being produced for the anniversary. So they start writing again, this time with all the Doctors, this time with the EastEnders set, this time with the idea that this has to be 3D in their head. And so they've got to produce a five-minute project. But wait, they don't. Now it needs to be a two-part project. One half will be broadcast on Friday night. The next half will be broadcast as part of Noel's house party on the Saturday night. But wait, it gets more complicated than that because no segment in Noel's house party can run longer than five minutes. And that is why one episode of Dimensions in Time is almost eight minutes long. Ah. And the other is five. And not only that, but even of that five-minute episode that we got for part two, there were actually scenes filmed and cut to bring it down. It actually it answers a lot of questions when we come into that second half of why it feels like it is going... Well, lots of this feel like it's going 200 miles an hour, but that second half especially feels like it. So we are just going to use one paragraph to explain all of this story arc, and then that's it. <laughs> if, you, if you're out of the room making a cuppa at that time, good luck trying to keep up. <laughs> Nathan Turner and the production crew, they started reaching out. They started looking for people to appear. They approached the doctors, of course, and via some limitations regarding availability, the doctors agreed with varying levels of enthusiasm and consent. Unsurprisingly, Tom Baker was a difficult one. (laughs) I've got some notes on him we'll get to later. (laughs) Originally, the big villain was meant to be the master, to be portrayed by Anthony Ainley as last appearing on television. He declined. He just said no. However, John Nathan Turner still had a friendship with Kate O'Mara, who'd previously played the Rani for both Colin Baker and the Sylvester McCoy era, and she agreed. There was also an assistant cast for the Rani who was named, not on screen but off screen, a Syrian. Originally was meant to be played by Ian McKellen. Was it really? That's oh. why he was named that way. Oh, that would have been so cool if he that franchise had just had that little moment of Ian. Oh. So they have a script, they have a plan, they have a cast, they have a uh, number of costumes obtained from all over Doctor Who fandom. A lot of these are fan-donated and worn costumes. And they've got a way, which we'll talk about later, to include the Doctors that are no longer with us. We are now in July of 1993, when the EastEnders production team turn around and go, oh, you can only have one day of filming. Oh, wow. Now, they were only talking about filming 12 minutes total 
at this point. But even that was going to be impossible to turn around in a day. Mm. So at this point, they start writing another script, which appropriately, given what's happening with Doctor Who this year, would have involved the Toymaker. Oh, wow. It was going to involve the Toymaker pitted against the various Doctors and various enemies in an amusement park. It was either going to be filmed, possibly going to be filmed at Chessington because various members of the uh, teams had like ties to Chessington and to the management there. Mm -hmm. But... Eventually, Children in Need managed to kind of like strong arm East Enders going, no, just just give them two days. <laughs> just give them two days. So Endgame was abandoned, which is just as well, because the original actor for the Toymaker had already said no. <laughs> and we're back to Dimensions in Time being shot on the Easter Enders set. And we will cover details of that shooting as we come upon them, as we cover the episodes, because there's a lot. Oh, so much. There's a lot of stuff going on. It is a complicated mess, and some of it I'll be visiting as we cover the story itself. Mm. You can watch the entire thing on YouTube. You know, this was never commercially released. That was part of the reason everyone waived their feeds and everyone agreed to be on board. But there is a lot out there on this. One last note of interest, though, is that Nathan Turner wanted to direct this. Mm. Because of bureaucracy in the BBC, it was actually assigned to a guy called Stuart MacDonald because he was the main director for Children in Need that year. It was pretty much his only time directing fiction of any kind. But he did have other credits, including Tomorrow's World, yep. which you'll have already heard clips from earlier, Crime Watch UK. Okay. <laughs> And the original UK television incarnation of Robot Wars, for which he also provided the memorable voiceovers introducing the robots and the beginning and ending of the battles. Roboteers, stand by. He's, he's Roboteers, stand by? Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. He's the Activate guy. I never saw that coming. <laughs> so they have a script, they have a cast, they have a director, they have a gimmick. They have all sorts of waivers put in place. Dimensions in Time was recorded on September 22nd and 23rd on the East Enders backlog at BBC Elstree. There was additional shooting that took place in and around Greenwich because of the availability of various other actors and locations. But we can cover that as we go through an episode that doesn't start with a standard introduction. It starts with a premature visit to Crinkly Bottom. Just having a, just having a little look there, Andy. Oh, my eyes go all funny. Oh, Sorry about that. Oh, I've really done my eyes. I think I need to see the doctor. Well, well, well. I've never gone this far back in time before. <laughs> Do you? I am the Doctor. Oh, no. Little Noly sat there reading the crinkly bottom observer. Definitely not looking at uh, pictures of Cindy Crawford and getting blurred vision. Yes, wanking jokes. <laughs> wanking jokes. <laughs> Despite Noel's house party normally being part of a Saturday night on the BBC, we've gone to Crinkly Bottom a day early for this part of Children in Need, and Noel isn't here to be bemused by this Doctor Who special by himself because there's somebody at the door, and it's John Pertwee Aww. in full Third Doctor regalia, just absolutely throwing a diss at Noel Edmonds, basically calling him short, old, untalented... <laughs> I've seen you, uh, I've seen you in the year 2010. Oh. 
You're still on television. Am I? <laughs> or am I doing serious programs? You no, know, I said I travel through space and time. I don't visit Fantasy Island. You're absolutely right. I heard it was thick. I thought they were talking about his waist. <laughs> Fat. Never gonna do serious television. <laughs> like, literally, he, he slams him the whole bit of, uh, for I mean, all, all of, of it this. turned out to be true, so really, John yeah. Pertwee was a Time Lord. Well, he, d- he did say that he'd been in the future, and in 2000, uh, 2010, that Noel was still on telly. Unfortunately, he was correct. <laughs> But they go and they sit down in front of a lovely old-looking bake-like television, which I'm sure the 3D effect would look wonderful on. <laughs> yeah, we were worried about the YouTube quality. <laughs> and Noel reminds John Pertwee, a.k.a. the Doctor, that he'll need a pair of these 3D specs, which John is just like, yeah, sure, mate, whatever. <laughs> and so, for the first time in four years, we get a brand new episode of Doctor Who. Pickled in time, like gherkins in a jar. Mistress Rani, the time tunnel is ready to receive its first guests. Proceed. Fated to wander a dismal corner of the universe for 20 years. Helpless, paralysed. It'll drive them insane. Nice carpet. <laughs> There's that feel, isn't there, of uh, season seven, and it's got that feel of the the TARDIS, where it's like this should this should have really been modified about twenty years ago. However, we're sticking with this is how the TARDIS looks. <laughs> the console itself is actually based off of the Peter Davison to Sylvester McCoy console. They actually cast brand new fiberglass uppers off it in black rather than grey and did all the red buttons so there was a little bit of money spent on this you know there was a little bit of scratch on it but the actual TARDIS set around it Mm. belongs to someone that donated and offered up a lot to this story a guy called Andrew Beach who I've got a history with Um, I've worked a couple of conventions with him he's got a long history as a story Doctor Who fan he's worked for the BBC off and on over the years but he had this TARDIS set built for a convention in 1993 the BBC destroyed the TARDIS set sometime around 1987 or 88 Mm -hmm. I mean the set actually looks pretty good it actually looks a bit better than the TARDIS set looked for the last few appearances it made on screen however that carpet (laughs) we then get uh, how the first and second doctors are being included Mm. which appears to be by the Rani's own words pickled in time like gherkins (laughs) in a jar and both the uh, William Hartnell sculpt and the Patrick Troughton sculpt definitely look a little bit pickled. (laughs) When uh, Troughton's head comes along, his eyes are slightly widened, you know. Obviously, how the Doctor was, the second Doctor was, it's quite fitting with that sort of chaos that he used to bring. But, oh my God, it was the words pickled and then seeing those heads float past just made me really laugh. (laughs) There was a bit, actually, that I don't think I'd ever noticed before, which is a surprisingly advanced little bit of special effect here, which there is a point when Patrick Troughton's pickled head actually goes behind the TARDIS console central column. Yes. And you can see it, and it's tinted red, and I'm like, oh, that's actually quite fancy for this budget. I mean, like, they've made a whole new... Co- I didn't know that was a brand-new console, so that's going to cost some money. And the Oh, it's not, it's not a brand-new console. It's a brand-new set of panels. Oh, okay, The console panels. was still the uh, what's known as the Five Doctors console, oh, because okay. the Five Doctors is where that console first appeared. 
Oh, okay, my my impressness goes down a smidge then. Still, still, at least they put a new lick of paint on it. It's got a new hat. And we're also introduced to Syrian, the uh, Rani's companion for this, who alternates between sassing her and calling her mistress. They've got an interesting dynamic. <laughs> you need the carpet for that. <laughs> Originally, he was part of an opening to this story that was going to be a bit darker and a bit more grandiose, which was he was going to be him actually ambushing Cybermen to capture them to put in the menagerie. And the Cybermen realising they'd been betrayed, there was going to be a battlefield sequence. Oh. Money. Yeah, and time. Time. <laughs> the Rani's plan is like a little bit unclear. I mean, to be honest, it's a little bit unclear all the way through. This this does not have a coherent, cohesive plot. Nope. Mayday. Mayday. This is an urgent message for all of the doctors. It's vitally important that you listen carefully to me for once. Our whole existence is being threatened by a renegade Time Lord known only as the Rani. She hates me. She even hates children. But speaking of lack of coherence and cohesiveness, we then get a very sped up title sequence with a new version of the theme tune. It was by a group called Cybertech. Uh, we will see at least one of them later in this story. They appear in costume as a sea devil. Oh, does he? They basically came together and they did a techno version of the Doctor Who theme back in 1992. They included a bunch of audio clips in it as well. And it was around the time that rave versions of TV themes were actually appearing in the charts anyway. So they were kind of capitalising on things in addition to being Doctor Who fans. But whilst they were on set, acting as both uh, monster actors and also extras on the East Enders set, they kind of slipped John Nathan Turner a tape. They had friends in the production team, but he was like, oh, I am looking for a new version of the theme to use on this. So they gave him a tape and it had a version of their techno theme that had lots of voice clips on it, a version of their techno theme that was just purely instrumental, and a more traditional version of the theme that they thought was going to be the one that he'd use. No, he went for the techno version. But we get our appearance from Tom Baker. He's <laughs> trapped in a swirling vortex of colour, speaking into a microphone that was not originally planned and they had to cobble together on the day, speaking some dialogue that was not what was originally written. Two of my earlier selves have already been snared in her vicious trap. The grumpy one and the flautist, do you remember them? She wants to put us out of action, lock us away in a dreary backwater of London's East End, trapped in a time loop in perpetuity. Her evil is all around us. I can hear the heartbeat of a killer. She's out there somewhere. We must be on our guard and we must stop her before she destroys all of my other selves. Oh. Oh. Good luck, my dears. He literally rewrote the dialogue twice, <laughs> once beforehand, once on the day. So him being in the broom closet with the random shapes going past him because 3D, was that the original plan or was it the basis of that he was he was moved into that situation because Tom Baker, Tom Baker being Tom Baker and possibly being a bit awkward? Uh, the latter. <laughs> Originally, he was meant to be in Albert Square with everyone else. Yeah. He was meant to interact with the other doctors. It didn't happen. I think that was written out sometime before they got to shooting. And yeah, as I said, he wanted to rewrite the dialogue. He did rewrite the dialogue. He also wanted, at the point where he says, oh, good luck, my dears. 
to turn around and for there to be a gaping bullet hole in the side of his face. Why? Because <laughs> what, he's killing him off? Is he had Solo in this? <laughs> and John Nathan Turner was like, well, that's an idea. What if, now hear me out, what if <laughs> we, don't. we have a bruise in the shape of a question mark? And Tom agreed to that. And it is very slightly visible. Oh, I couldn't even see that. It looks like a smudge. Oh. Part of it is VHS. Part of it is, I think they cut away before he'd fully finished turning his face because they're like, this is stupid. Even by our standards of this ah. story, this is stupid. Tom originally was not going to wear his costume, much as he'd refused to wear the costume for previous video appearances he'd done. There was a little bit of manipulation here where Tom Baker turned up wearing the suit he'd been using to film the ITV drama Medics. And it just so happened that his last Doctor Who costume, the all-red burgundy one, mm -hmm. which I love, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful version of the fourth Doctor's costume, yep. was just hanging up on the door. And Tom was so taken aback when Nathan Turner turns up, he sat there wearing the costume, Aww. happy as Larry. Smart move. See, that's the way to do it, isn't it? You make it seem like it's Tom Baker's idea. <laughs> a Cyberman and a Time Lord from Gallifrey. Just one more specimen needed, an earthling. The menagerie is almost complete. Time is literally of the essence. The Doctor's remaining incarnations are teetering on the edge of a precipice. You're obsessed. Don't forget what we've come here for. Earthlings pose no threat to my technology, imbecile. It's the Doctor I want out of the way. Interception in five seconds, Rani. Although I will miss the challenge. Three, two... One. Activate! So we're back in the Rani's TARDIS. We see the first couple of aliens being hidden behind the roundels. Those roundels are really cool. They're made out of fiberglass. They're actually quite heavy. We see a Cyberman, which would allude to the scene that we previously hadn't seen. We also see a Time Lord from Gallifrey, mm -hmm. who is Andrew Beach. That's that's my friend Andrew, who's just there because that was one of his costumes. <laughs> They're all being pickled. <laughs> that's what made me laugh, because especially with the pickled uh, uh, theories, I was like, so behind every single one of those spots, there's just something else hidden there. The Rani is urging that we hurry up. Time is of the essence. She needs to, you know, destroy the Doctor. And Sirian just back chats her going, you're obsessed. Don't forget what we came here for. And me as a member of the audience is going, what? What did we come here for? The Rani dismisses this, saying this, that Earthlings are no threat to her technology. And I repeat, what technology? <laughs> what is going on? We had some exposition from Tom Baker. I don't think it actually helps. We know she's got the heartbeat of a killer. We don't know what else she's up to. <laughs> well, because they say that they need one more specimen, and that specimen is a human... Earthling. I love that term, Earthling. We had guardians in the last episode. We have earthlings here. Earthling needs to be a term that comes back. And obviously, uh, the her um, companion says, you know, they are no threat. But then, then it's like, ah, this is why the doctor's involved because he's the only one that can stop her. And it's like, oh, that's great. So what are you going to do? Blow him out of the sky? No, I'm going to weirdly get him stuck in some form of time loop for reasons. For reasons. <laughs> There's just no explanation of why she's doing why she's doing it. It's like just blast about the sky for fuck's sake. <laughs> well, I mean, she kind of does. 
I mean, she sees the TARDIS, she blasts it with a lightning bolt, and rather than destroy it, it actually sends him to the Cutty Sarf. You have to be careful how you say that after a couple of drinks. Legitimately, this is one of my favourite sets of interactions because I love the Seventh Doctor and Ace. Oh, and Ace they, is Ace. Clearly, having played the role the most recently, they mm-hmm. just they just fall right back into it. Mm-hmm. They don't miss a beat. It's the Professor, it's Ace, it's a slight bit of sarkiness, but it's also the kind of uncle, yeah. niece, father-daughter type dynamic they had going on. Mm-hmm. The reason we're by the Cutty Sark is not for any clever storyline issue. It's the only day and place that Sylvester McCoy was available <laughs> due to other commitments. So it had to just be around Greenwich. <laughs> so everything, everyone we've seen has to be within a five-minute walk of Greenwich Observatory. <laughs> But as the Doctor's dialogue gives away, they were meant to be in China, they're now in London, and they're off by a good amount of time. It's 1973, and then for some reason, Ace gets very interested in a sign. Oi! Is anybody there? If I didn't know better, I could be convinced that someone has deliberately taken us off course. Ace, what are you doing? Hey, you're not the Doctor. Yes, I am, Ace. We seem to have slipped a groove in time. Where'd all these people come from? And where are we? Hey, Professor, look at this. Right, darling, special discount for you, since it's nearly Christmas. Oh, wicked. Yeah, what do you mean, discounts? This year's been bad enough as it is without you giving things away. Don't worry about it, what? <laughs> well, I was trying to figure out if there was something about the cutties. I was like, is it because she said it looks like the cutty sark to me? Or is this a bit of a nod to Doctor Who? I think it's mainly there because we get an explosion, like a white flash. Now, these were actual practical explosions being done on the day by Mike Tucker of the BBC Visual Effects Department. No. (laughs) But they just looked shit, and so they put a digital wipe over the top of it as well. Okay, that makes a bit more sense, because I was like, that looks just like a digital wipe to me. (laughs) But the scene we cut to is then the Sixth Doctor and Ace stood either side of the Albert Square sign. Mm -hmm. So I think they started with that shot and then worked backwards to where the Seventh Doctor and Ace needed to be. Because it's like, well, we've got Ace and the Sixth Doctor either side of a sign, so the previous scene needs to end with the Seventh Doctor and Ace either side of a sign. It's how they sort of gloss over the fact they're in the 1970s. So that thing of, we're in 1973, it happens so quick that actually on my first watching of this, so you've got Sixth Doctor, uh, Colin Baker, walking along with Ace, and Sanjay comes up and says, oh, do you want some discount on these clothes? Would you like these clothes? You know, we're getting one of the better uh, EastEnders characters in Sanjay. And then they say, oh, yeah, it's going to be all the rage in 1994. And I'm like, and? And I was like, oh, oh, yeah, they've travelled in time. I missed this completely. Because it's almost like glossed over that beginning bit. The Doctor's changed, but now they've just for some reason travelled in time. Clearly it means something to the Doctor because he's about to say something when, boom, there's another explosion and we get another change Mm -hmm. and we now move forward in time as we are about to learn where we get the third doctor and bonnie langford playing mel what's happening change you me everything as though someone is rooting through my personal time stream but what on earth for Earth. And there is something about this that feels so A-level media because mm. the scene starts and they are both stood stock still and then everyone starts moving. <laughs> <laughs> it happens in quite a few scenes where it's like, 
action and that cut is just it's not there quite <laughs> part of it is because of the 3d effect because they had to choreograph every scene to know where plant pots were going to be to know mm. where benches were going to be mm-hmm. to know where the camera could move so it was almost like probably having a click track of having to pace and go tick 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 mel echoes the entire audience here by saying what's happening and the third doctor's just like ah, time <laughs> <laughs> tell me why me then you come to uh kathy and pauline who th- to make them look old they've stuck beige jackets on them and wigs and it's like oh yeah because they're now old and but but the problem is watching this now. She's talking about oh when my when my uh, husband was here, uh, th- this wouldn't happen. Then you're like no because he's died. But in the storyline in 1993, he was still alive, so it would have made so much more sense back then. They predicted the future that hey, guess what? Arthur would die. <laughs> <laughs> Although this is EastEnders, everyone dies. You could throw a dart at a character sheet, and chances are you'd hit at least five people that would have died by now. Completely. Year is this? Oh, don't you start enough oddballs round here as it is. Madam, what year is this? 2013. Bless him, John Pertwee is giving his all in this. He had way higher profile Doctor Who projects to be working on in 1993. He had two audio dramas that came out for BBC Radio, Paradise of Death and the Ghosts of Endspace. But no, here he is, <laughs> rattling around Albert Square by something that he himself admitted was a bunch of old two. Don't worry, he doesn't. He gets put out his misery quite quickly after that because we get another pew! And at this point, we're, we're in 1973. And how do we know it's 1973? Yeah, I can remember exactly where I was when Kennedy was assassinated. But don't tell Arthur. <laughs> how long ago was that then? Well, it'd be ten years. No they're talking about Kennedy's death 10 years before and baby Ian Bill is just mucking about Uh, (laughs) I love that can't get the proper Ian Bill because he's not in those two days of shooting but we're going to get a kid to pretend to be him it would be really weird for the adult Ian Bill to be sat there dressed as a two year old oh no I want to see that now (laughs) he was dead gutted he wasn't more involved because he's a massive Doctor Who fan is he really he appears on screen a bit later for like Two seconds. He walks across, doesn't he? I was yeah. going to ask this, actually. That was him walking across the shop, wasn't it? That was literally him putting himself in the scene because <laughs> he was really upset he wasn't involved. <laughs> Mitchell Brothers taking my view. But anyway, we'll come on to that in a minute. Let's. Th- this is bad enough, the storyline jumping around. We don't need to jump around as well. But now we know we are back in 1973, 10 years after Kennedy was assassinated. We cut to the sixth Doctor, who's still wearing that costume. Be thankful this is an audio format <laughs> and his granddaughter Susan oh my Foreman God. We, like I was messaging you on my last run through of notes on this and I was like right explain Susan is she Gallifreyan is she a time lord why is she in her 50s now still going grandfather where's me grandfather oh my god right to answer your first couple of questions yes no maybe <laughs> I love it. Your your reply back to my message was, oh, give me an easy one. Problem is, when Doctor Who started, there wasn't Gallifreyans, there wasn't Time Lords. It was just a man and his granddaughter cut off from their own people, exiled from their own land. The whole running away, the whole going on the run, the whole Time Lord society, different casts between Gallifreyans and Time Lords and regeneration. They made it up as they went along, like so many TV shows. Susan wasn't even meant to be in this. 
literally the day before was when that casting change happened. Originally, it was meant to be the sixth Doctor and Jamie, uh, Fraser Hines, who had originally travelled with the second Doctor and had then met the sixth Doctor in the Mm -hmm. multi-Doctor story, the two Doctors. Mm -hmm. And it was the day before that Fraser called John Nathan Turner and said, I can't do it. I'm stuck on the set of Emmerdale, which is where he was working at the time. Things have happened. I can't make it down. So John Nathan Turner called Carol Ann Ford, who played Susan, and said, can you replace Frasier at short notice? Carol Ann Ford agreed. John Nathan Turner then called his scriptwriting partner and went, good news, you've got to rewrite a scene. You can tell that because it is just literally a going, you're not my grandfather. Yeah? Barbara! Where are the others? Don't ask. Someone is trying to separate me from the TARDIS and knows my affinity for this planet. Where's Grandfather? My Doctor! The original! Where's Grandfather? And it's so funny because it's like, hang on a minute, maybe the storyline did develop with Doctor Who that you had Gallifreyans, you had Time Lords, you know, and she would have been known the fact of that he's a Time Lord, that he can regenerate. Yet with this... Nope, she's playing it as if this is 1963. Doctor Who, nah, she doesn't know anything about regeneration whatsoever. (laughs) I don't think she's playing it like that. I think she doesn't... I mean, to be honest, even if you had, as she had, met, like, four other incarnations of your grandfather and you're then presented with Colin Baker... I just want anybody apart from Colin. Not my doctor, mate. You're not my... I mean, really, you are not my grandfather. But no, I think she does get it because she's like, where's my doctor, the original? Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. That wording's a little bit... Okay. Susan, you get a pass. That's it, though. (laughs) But originally it was meant to be Jamie and he was going to ask about uh, the Six Doctors' other travelling companion, Perry, who he'd become a little bit enamoured with when they previously met. Uh, There were a bunch of other companions that wanted to appear but just couldn't clear their schedules. We were meant to get Joe Grant, uh, played by Katie Manning, Mm -hmm. couldn't clear the schedule. Uh, Also, I think she was in Australia at the time. Uh, Mary Tam, who played the first Romana, we see the second Romana later, Mm -hmm. she was meant to appear. And Janet Fielding, who'd played Tegan with the fifth Doctor and then again more recently in some of the last couple of Jodie Whittaker stories Mm -hmm. was also meant to appear. But again, scheduling. It was everything was so tight and last minute. Do you know what? I'm actually, this is one positive that I would take from this. The amount of companions, they fit into 13 minutes of uh, episode is actually phenomenal. And there were some, especially the next one, where I went, oh, and the next one is a little bit of a known one, and that's Sarah Jane, who seems to now be mates with Sharon. My skin's been great since I started using all over sunblock. I think it's right, it's the law. The law? Since when? Hey, where have you been hiding then? <laughs> I just put this down to Sarah being an investigative journalist and just immediately integrating herself. <laughs> That is such a good shout. That is why she's doing it. She's also wearing a replica of her costume that she wore in her last story, The Hand of Fear, which is her own. Oh, is it? She she brought that to set. Oh, I love that touch. I really love that touch. 
I've always had a soft spot for Sarah Jane Smith. I've yep. always had a soft spot for Liz Sladen. I was lucky enough to meet her a number oh. of times. I remember where I was, what I was doing when I found out she passed away. Honestly, it's one of two Doctor Who related deaths that have just absolutely devastated me. And I think it is purely personal because they were both people I got to spend a good amount of time with. Mm. One was Elizabeth Sladen and the other is uh, someone we'll be seeing on screen shortly, Nicholas Courtney, who played the Brigadier. Mm. We established that, you know, in 2013, it's law to wear sunblock, which I kind of, that amused me because it made me think of Robocop. It, it did a bit, especially seeing that moments later we get the futuristic train go past. And also, how's that going? Which governed? just looks like the Elizabeth line, to be <laughs> honest. <laughs> they predicted another thing, uh, maybe 10 years early, but they've predicted another thing. <laughs> Sarah ditches her new best mate, Sharon, to go and find oh, the third doctor. I love that moment. And the third Doctor gives another bit of exposition, which again, just saying it's the work of a genius. I mean, apparently <laughs> the line between genius and insanity is very narrow. Yeah, it's, it, it was sort of like he repeats the sort of the genius part several times, but explains that they're in a 20 year loop between uh, 1973, 1993 and 2013. Now, the irony of this is, is they're about the years where uh, Noel Edwards were actually relevant as well. <laughs> it links us back to Noli. <laughs> He's the Rani. <laughs> no, the beard, the hair. He's the master. He is the master. There you go. That's that's the trick they missed. They shouldn't have uh, casted the Rani. They shouldn't have had Noel as the master. At this point as well, Sarah does say, why this street Why this street market in London? I was like, well, that's the only place they could really get a short notice, Sarah. <laughs> Although the third Doctor does say, well, this isn't the focus, Sarah, referring to the fact that, you know, the focus is meant to be, I think, Greenwich. Yes. Because of the Meridian. Yeah, yeah. You know, we seem to be flitting around in some sort of 20-year time loop. 1973. Or 1993. 2013. Yeah, well, time distortion of this nature requires an exact localised focus. But why this street market in London? This isn't the focus, Sarah. Blundering fools. They're getting too near the truth. Release the specimens. After a brief detour to the Rani's TARDIS, we are back in Albert Square. It is now 1993 again. And this sequence... And these little bits of dialogue are legitimately my favourite bits of this mm -hmm. because you've got the Fifth Doctor, you've got Nyssa, you've got Perry, you've got Cybermen and everyone's ignoring the Cybermen, which I actually think is really cool. Yeah. The idea that the occupants of Albert Square cannot see the monsters. Feeding time at the zoo? And the companions went in two by two. Isn't Noah's Ark, Doctor? Maybe it is. Run, run, run! This way! And that little exchange of dialogue, feeding time at the zoo and the companions went in two by two. It's actually really nice little bit of dialogue and it's one of the bits of this that feels the most like proper Doctor Who. Because you get the run moment at the end of that as well, which was so synonymous with his Doctor. Like when I say run, run, run! <laughs> And I love that. It was, it felt like, and when they're running along and run into the biggest um, monster in Albert Square, and that's Pat Butcher. No, I can't say that joke. She's lovely. I can't do that. I feel like a horrible Big love human Pamson being. Clements. Does a lot of charity work. <laughs> she does. I can't, I, I feel bad now. But it did feel like the most genuine part of Doctor Who. Oh, you, you gotta clear the streets. You're in terrible danger. What's your game? You gotta get away from here. 
Fucking hell. <laughs> we get a bunch of creatures all looming out of various windows. We yeah. get Fifi from the Happiness Patrol, a Sylvester McCoy classic, on the fruit stand. And we see a bunch of characters looming out of the upstairs windows of the Queen Vic. And the last character is a character called Zog that was a costume from a Doctor Who stage play that starred at first John Pertwee and then Colin Baker called The Ultimate Adventure, which was very low budget but did include at least one song and dance number oh my god that's brilliant i remember seeing john pertsby when i was a kid to the um wurzel gummidge stage show uh and he starred in that and i was like oh i wish i'd seen that as well <laughs> is it available there are bootlegs available on youtube it is very potato quality but what people have done is they've put together a complete version from three or four fan camera versions yeah yeah actually the best way to experience the ultimate adventure is the audio play version uh big finish did an audio adaptation starring colin baker who took over from pertwee partway through the run mm-hmm and that's that's actually probably the best way to enjoy it. Have you any idea where we're going? Doctor, where's the TARDIS? 20 years back and three miles away. Come on. But they're running towards the Queen Vic. They're trying to escape the monsters. They encounter a gate with a padlock and at no point does it occur to any of them to just fucking over climb it. over the fence. It's free foot. Come over it. One of them can give the others a bunk up. Yeah, if they're really struggling. There's three of them now. <laughs> or just wait until you time skip back to being John Pertwee and Sonic Screwdriver the bitch. <laughs> so the monsters are bearing down. The Rani has revealed that she is the mastermind behind this plan. And she says the following line of dialogue with a lot of unnecessary repetition. You can't escape, Doctor. Say goodbye, Doctors. You're all going on a long journey. A very long journey. Say goodbye, Doctor. (laughs) And that leads us into something that I guess counts as a cliffhanger to be continued in part two. Very good. Indeed, it is to be continued tomorrow night, 6.45, on my house party. And that's when you can see part two and you can see whether or not you've actually got yourselves involved in the production. If you think that Mandy should be helping the doctor, there's one phone number. Or if you think it's Big Ron, it's the other. So for Mandy, it's 0891 But if you think it ought to be Big Ron, it's 0891 So remember, tomorrow night, 6.45. On the house party, you can find out what the outcome of your voting is. You can get involved, ladies and gentlemen. You can get involved for only 36p a minute. You can get involved. And they're going to make you donate to children in need, which is the better side of things. However, you could choose someone getting involved. You can help with the production of this. No, you can't rewrite the scripts. <laughs> That's in stone. You can vote between Mandy or Big Ron to get involved with this storyline. 
Who would you choose? <laughs> I would have chosen Big Ron, and I was really hoping it would be Big Ron that was going to get involved. I did choose Big Ron. Oh, did you? You actually did vote. Yeah, I chose Big Ron, and Mandy won. But thankfully, thanks to the internet, the clip of Big Ron saving the day is out there. Yes! I'm going to go... Oh, can you forward it to me? (laughs) But we're getting ahead of ourselves because, as you said, we can decide that fate. We come back from it. We're back into an outro section with Noel and John. We're then thrown back to the children in the studio. Andy Peters does his best to say how brilliant this all was. (laughs) It's not the least convincing acting we're going to get on this episode, but it's fairly high up there. But now we skip forward 24 hours. It's Saturday night. It's Noel's house party. There are regular checks on the votes as the night goes on. And then it's revealed that the public want to see Mandy save the doctor. Special house party this week because last night we were helping children in need in Crinkly Bottom. And we asked people to phone us and pledge money and determine what would happen in this Doctor Who series. Special one for 3D. £101,000 has been raised in this! And it's going to be Mandy who helps the Doctor. Save is an interesting word because really, (laughs) she almost actually causes things to go even worse. But anyway, now cut down to just over five minutes, we get part two of Dimensions in Time. Rani. I take back what I said about an ingenious operator being behind these time jumps. So, much like you do with all cliffhangers, you get the recap from last time, you see the menagerie of monsters. There are at least three people I know in that menagerie. (laughs) That's so awesome. And the fifth doctor is immediately also throwing some slams at the Rani, going, Well, I take back what I said about ingenious. (laughs) Ooh, you bitch. (laughs) Perry speaking for the audience, saying, What's going on? I don't know, but. What even confuses me even more is that the Rani orders all of the badniks into the pub, which is inside her TARDIS, because they've only got two days to shoot. They can't get something to represent her TARDIS on screen. I didn't know if she meant, like, that the Queen Vic was her TARDIS, or her TARDIS was actually inside disguised as a cigarette machine or a fruity or something. Oh, that's a good question, because... We, it does appear later on as well. But no, I just don't understand that. You've got the upper hand. So why are you destroying that upper hand of the Rani? Why are you doing it to yourself? I think she was just trying to kind of like corral the Doctor. And now she's got him trapped by an impenetrable padlock. <laughs> Damn you, free foot fence. <laughs> Maybe the Doctor's had a couple of pints in the thick and can't climb out. We've all been there where we've tried to climb something some, over something a bit tipsy. It might explain his inaction in a little bit because the fifth <laughs> doctor puts his hand to his temples and he's trying to summon up his remaining selves, excluding the ones that are pickled. But the doctor doesn't summon up all of himself. He just summons up one of the cool ones. I've got a few more tricks up my sleeve yet, madam. It's time for you to start losing. You, Earth female, come here. This must be this to me. I'll take my chance. It's the third Doctor yeah. with Liz Shaw. I like this moment. Liz left the series between seasons, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so it was lovely to see her here. But she does sacrifice herself sort of unnecessarily. Then the third Doctor just goes and hides behind the gate. Yeah, Rani summons Liz. Liz does so, but going, no, I've got a plan. 
I'll take my chances. They struggle with a gun. The third doctor is just crouched there, either concentrating or taking a shit or wondering why his agent agreed to this. And that's when Badsy decides, it's my moment. The public have chosen me and just goes across and goes, leave her alone. And then there's a moment of everyone sort of looking at each other. And then they all run away. Because Mandy doesn't interfere on the behalf of Liz or the Doctor. She sides with the Rani, which, given it's Mandy, that kind of makes sense. But no sooner has Liz left... Uh, then Bessie arrives, driven by Mike Yates. Oh, it's so cool seeing the third Doctor. And I know we saw it on the uh, Five Doctors and all that, but to see the third Doctor, maybe not driving Bessie, but in Bessie was really cool. I really enjoyed that moment. For those of you that don't know Doctor Who and have somehow stuck out an hour of this so far, <laughs> Bessie is the Doctor's yellow Edwardian roadster that he first obtained when he was exiled to Earth in the 1970s and it's made a number of appearances again since both in the Five Doctors as you mentioned but also in the Sylvester McCoy story Battlefield. Mm -hmm. John Pertwee loved that car. Uh, It was particularly galling for him to see someone else driving it particularly as Mike Yates kept flooding the engine and stalling it. (laughs) He was getting proper arsey over it. I can imagine John was absolutely living on that. (laughs) But Mike Yates has a real gun. He shoots the gun out of the Rani's hand, which unfortunately was not caught as it was meant to and smashed on the floor, therefore resulting in it having to be super glued back together last minute. (laughs) Oh, I didn't see it smash. That's brilliant. Oh, no, it happened off camera because basically... The Rani was meant to go yeah. and throw the gum, it having been chopped. And then Mike Tucker, the special effects guy, was on the floor ready to catch it. And one or the other missed. And boom. <laughs> oh, dear. So the third Doctor and Mike drive off at speed. For reasons. Well, it's supposed to get over the river to get to the TARDIS, isn't it? That's the whole point. Because they go speeding along and then they get to a helicopter. Because there is there is a little bit of budget on this. They've got a helicopter. <laughs> Who's inside that helicopter, Ash? Oh, it's Nicholas Courtney, the Brigadier. And this is my second favourite moment because the Brigadier has technically met all of the classic Doctors up until this point because, of course, the five Doctors brought them all together. Mm -hmm. Except one, and that is Colin Baker. They never got to work together on screen. And so that is why the third Doctor changes into the sixth Doctor. That's really nice. Because it gives them their moment on screen together. Nick Courtney was fine being involved with this. He was fine being involved with most everything Doctor Who. He was a lovely, lovely gent. He wasn't too keen on the helicopter. It was quite wobbly and was not reacting well to the crossed winds coming off the Thames. So he's like, oh God, we've got to do another take. Oh, bollocks. (laughs) Get a lovely little interchange of dialogue uh, between the Sixth Doctor and the Brigadier. He's saying, we'll speak soon to all of you, I hope. He says at one point, I'm finding it hard to keep up, Doctor. And I was like, yeah, same. (laughs) Mate, you think you're having difficulty keeping up with Seven? Oh, boy, howdy. But the Sixth Doctor is off to find his companions and probably try and work out how we're going to draw this all to a conclusion in about two and a half minutes. We cut back to the Rani's TARDIS, who says, I now have everything I want apart from one Earthling. And I'm thinking, fuck me, you were just in a market full of them. You could have abducted Mandy. 
You could have invited Mandy in for a shandy That's... and you could have just bagged her then. She seems to be quite willing to come towards you. <laughs> so just take her. <laughs> they should have got Doc Cotton in. That would have been great. Oh. Just Doc Cotton behind one of the TARDIS <laughs> round halls with a fag hanging out. It's going to don't even want to be here. Has that sprinkle on her inside? Ethel. She could have Ethel. lured Ethel inside. Ethel would have gone in looking for her little her willy. Willy! That would have been the way. Oh my god, she could have literally had a little moment there. But we're back in 1993. Ian Beale makes a blink and you'll miss it appearance because yeah, he was that big a fan of Doctor Who, and yeah, he was pissed off to not be more involved. The Mitchell <laughs> Brothers are just there, heading towards their lockup, where Romana appears to be stealing hubcaps off a mini. <laughs> Who are you? What's your game? I was looking for the doctor. It's really any of your business. Well, you won't find him in here. He lives at number one Albert Square over there. I suggest you leave. But you've seen the doctor? Yeah. Dr. Legg is the only doctor around here. Doctor Who? So I, I'm a loose Doctor Who fan. Need you meaning like I haven't never seen every single episode, but I'm very much a John Pertwee. Uh, the third Doctor is always my one, but the Ra- Romana is one of those ones because I I think one of the first DVDs I got was Destiny of the Daleks, and at the beginning of that episode is when the second Rana is there and she's sort of just going behind a curtain, going, "Oh, who shall I be? Who shall I be?" And it's a re- I've seen that episode so many times, and she takes the form of a princess uh, that that she. Yeah, Doctor's like, no, you can't choose that form. So when she appears, I let out a little, yay! And I think it was one of those things that I was like, oh, at that point, I was like, why haven't we seen Romana since? And then I found out that in the sort of lore of Doctor Who, she dies in the Time War. And I'm like, oh, that's sad. A lot of people die in the Time War, but depending on which parts of Doctor Who lore you... (laughs) listen to she also becomes lord president of gallifrey she also regenerates again in the real world she also marries tom baker one of my first doctor who novelizations i got as a kid was actually destiny of the daleks as well Mm. i didn't see it for a long time and i was a little disappointed when i did because the novelization was way better (laughs) but i did immediately i like oh i had a big crush on the second romana no i think a lot of people did i yeah she is very attractive this was just a weird appearance. Doesn't quite make sense. I suppose it just gives us a, an appearance to get the Mitchell brothers in. Yeah. You know, Romana says, well, I was looking for the Doctor. Not that it's any of your business. And Grant's like, oh, well, Dr. Leg lives at number one. And we get the moment. We get the moment. Say the line. Doctor Who! Ah! <laughs> and the crowd goes mild. But this part really confused me because they're looking for an earthling, yeah? So they're looking for an earthling and it's not really explained until right at the end. But the Rani needs an earthling. An earthling, an earthling, an earthling. Romana walks past the uh, the Queen Vic and is dragged in. And then I'm like, but she's Gallifrey. She's, she's a Time Lord. Why is she being dragged in? You wanted an Earthling. And I was so confused. And I was so annoyed. And it wasn't explained till later. But then we get a little bit of a appearance from an EastEnders legend, Mr. Mike Reed. Well, I've seen him thrown out of Vic, but uh, never dragged in. He says, uh, <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen them thrown out, never dragged in. I was like... I don't know, but in my 20s, walking around London, walking around pubs in London, there were plenty of touts trying to drag me into pubs. 
Apparently, his acting on this, like, one line of dialogue got worse with every take. (laughs) He was just getting more and more cartoonish and buffoonish as time went on. Because I think the idea is that every companion we're seeing is being extrapolated from Ace. Correct. That doesn't help when you've got multiple companions appearing together like you did with Nyssa and... Perry. Yeah, because that's not, as I said, at this point, it's not explained. It's only explained later of what form were you in? And I was like, oh, that's why. <laughs> that one line, if you're missing it, that one line of another uh, talking about people that I used to have crushes on uh, in the Doctor Who verse, if you don't hear that one line from that actress, you miss it completely. Miss it completely. But we're back in 1973 and we are actually now on the Cutty Sark. <laughs> I don't know why we're on the Cutty Sark because to get from where the Doctor was from the helicopter to the TARDIS does not involve climbing aboard the Cutty Sark. <laughs> but then they go instantly back to where they were when they landed with the helicopter. <laughs> get a very brief appearance from Deborah Watling playing Victoria, who has one line which she delivers like this Who's that terrible woman? Lots of. <laughs> That's some acting. <laughs> I love Deborah Watling, but that is some acting. She is also hiding a broken arm under her cloak. Oh, is she? Oh. Yeah, she broke it rollerblading. <laughs> so that's most... why she's wearing the big cloak. It's like, yeah, her arm's in a cast. So she's Victoria, dressed as a Victorian, because that's when her character was originally from, doing the most early 90s thing you could possibly do, rollerblading. Maybe that's why she was so shit at it. <laughs> but that is the Cutty Sark in 1973, the third Doctor ushers Victoria into the TARDIS and then we're back to the Greenwich Observatory in 1993. Ah, that makes a bit more reason of the jump, probably. And the Doctor's TARDIS lands, the seventh Doctor emerges, sees the Rani's TARDIS land because this is the focal point and at that point, Leela runs out from the Rani's TARDIS. Mm-hmm. Oh God, I've just realised a whole nother level this story doesn't make sense because if the Doctor's companion was in the Rani's TARDIS in one form or the other, where did Victoria oh come God, from? Oh my God, that... Oh my god, that makes no sense then. That is a massive gaping hole in the storyline, surely. Doctor! I see she let you go. Not before she cloned me, though. She's got a menagerie of clones in there. She's attempting to transfer a massive time tunnel to the Greenwich Meridian. She has a computer in there with genetic codes and brain prints of every living creature in the entire cosmos. With it, evolution is hers to control. Leela runs up looking like Pocahontas. Part of her deal for saying yes was, do not put me in the original costume. I am not showing that much skin on children in need. Oh, that I, I used to have that episode on DVD as well. I used to watch that series a lot. <laughs> you had a very interesting spank bank. Most people just go to Pornhub. <laughs> is chamois leather not a category on Pornhub? <laughs> Actually, saying that is uh, that Louise Louise, uh, Jameson, who uh, plays Leela, she actually went on to star in EastEnders because I was like, hang on a minute. She played um, the mother of Beppe. Uh, They own the the Italian restaurant on the square. So I was like, oh, that's a nice little combining moment of that. But then again, Bonnie Langford also appeared. And I mean, she went on to be a big part of EastEnders Mm. as well. But she appears in a costume that is not very revealing, but also not very flattering in any way. It looks 
pretty uncomfortable, actually. And the seventh doctor is like, ah, right, okay, she cloned you. What form were you in when she cloned you? Now, I think that's very important. And Leela's like, I was Romana because apparently I can remember that. Okay. Why hasn't this been questioned by Ace to begin with of why do I keep changing form? (laughs) And why do I think I'm now... Oh, Jesus. I mean, this script is... (laughs) This script makes no sense. <laughs> but that's when the seventh doctor is just like, oh, okay, there are two time brains in the Rani's computer. And then they board the TARDIS. And then there is the second worst piece of dubbing on this episode where a completely different Sylvester McCoy in a completely different environment, possibly at the bottom of a well, says, it's a overload. That means there are two time brains in the Rani's computer. It'll overload. 30 seconds to computer achieving full power status, mistress. Excellent. All this. 25 seconds, master. Trying to override the Rani's computer and harness the power of the time tunnel to pull her TARDIS in and not me. I assume it's not as easy as it sounds. Of course not. 20 seconds. Apparently, whatever the Rani's plan is, there are now 30 seconds left. K9 has appeared. Yeah. Because why not? I mean, yeah, it's lovely to see K9, but I don't know where he came from. Uh, the Seventh Doctor is wiring up lots of things to the Rani's TARDIS, which the Rani appears not to have noticed. <laughs> She's not noticed this short Scottish gremlin attaching jumper leads <laughs> to her time machine. Just allowing it to happen. She's allowed a specimen to escape. She's allowed this to happen. Maybe she wasn't inv- Maybe she wasn't available on that day of shooting in Greenwich. I think that's more the case of what this was. <laughs> oh no, you know the, um, the scene we had earlier where... Um, she dragged Romana inside the Queen Vic. Yeah. That was her last day. That was it. She was done. <laughs> I think she did almost all her stuff on one day. But anyway, the doctor says, well, I'm trying to overload the Rani's computer, blah, 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 wibbly wobbly, timey wimey, and then tries to get in mental contact with his other incarnations. I must try and free my other incarnations. Timey Good luck. Five seconds. Okay, nine. Activate the converter. Three, two, one, here goes. The Sixth Doctor doesn't even get an on-screen. Nope. He just gets the word precisely, precisely. dubbed in. <laughs> and also, Tom Baker's is literally a clipped version of what he said in the past. Or just another way he said it uh, in a different take. <laughs> That's definitely what that is. Canine activates a converter. The Seventh Doctor throws a switch. There's a series of small explosions around the Rani's TARDIS and it dematerialises, disappearing down the time tunnel. The first and second Doctor's heads are free to go back to their jars in the future army <laughs> universe. <laughs> we do get the quite fun line of hoisted by her own petardis, which I, I like from <laughs> yeah. Sylvester McCoy. We get another explanation as to why what happened happened. Ace asks if all your other selves are free. And the Doctor's like, well, yes, we are difficult to get rid of. And I'm like, well, not that difficult. It took another 12 years before you came back properly. (laughs) Well, there were two time brains in a computer. And I used it to propel her into the trap she set for me. So now your other selves are all free. Certainly I. I mean, we are difficult to get rid of. (laughs) But we get another terrible bit of ADR, which is Sylvester McCoy's laugh, which, again, it's a different Doctor from a different time, possibly a different story. Originally, this was meant to end differently. Basically, it was meant to end with the Doctor asking Ace where she would like to go. And Ace is like, well, when you set the TARDIS with the Great Wall of China, we ended up in Albert Square. So the Doctor's like, well, in that case, we'll head for Albert Square, (laughs) which, again, would have been a better ending. It would have. And that was the only way Doctor Who was celebrated on television with 
a new story. It's bad. It's very bad, but also it did some good. The telephone vote on Mandy versus Big Ron, it raised over 100k. Mm. And each segment had a spike in viewership of over 4 million on top of what was also watching. Oh, wow. So it did do some good because it did show the BBC that despite all the various back and forth negotiations going on with American television productions, the will they, won't they of the dark dimension and just the sheer clusterfuck of what was going on with Dimensions in Time is there was some interest and nostalgia from the great British public, despite the fact that what the great British public tuned in to see was not very coherent and probably didn't do a lot to dissuade people from thinking that Doctor Who was a bit cheap and naff because this episode did look cheap. It was cheap and it was quite naff. Seeing that you've got a a who's who of people in costumes (laughs) (laughs) Uh, people in costumes uh, in that scene where the Rani has the doctor surrounded and they are you know you've got a sea devil there um, which is going all the way back you know 20 years before this so it doesn't lose it you know even in 96 um, it was still trying to get away from that that it only involved really we'll come on to the movie at some point as i said in the future but only having the master in it not really having any other aliens in it because if you do that then you're, you're going to muddy those waters again the daleks appear pretty much in silhouette and voice only at the beginning of the tv movie yeah and that's it and their voices are way off mm. it's very easy to poke fun at dimensions in time we just have <laughs> a lot at the end of the day it was there to raise money for charity as much as it was to celebrate the legacy of a program hitting 30 years mm-hmm. And on that, it did succeed. A lot of people bought those little 3D glasses for a quid or whatever they were to watch that episode of Doctor Who. People phoned in to vote for that episode of Doctor Who. People would have probably given other donations. They would have bought the Radio Times where the Doctor made it to the front cover again. Mm -hmm. And proceeds from that episode of the Radio Times would also have gone to children in need. So it succeeded on that front. Context is important when we look at Dimensions in Time. Not only the context of what it did for children in need, but the context of what should have been. We very potted covered the Dark Dimension. We very briefly covered the fact that Doctor Who had not officially been cancelled, but also it hadn't been renewed, and that there were various sniffings around from American television producers, one of whom would eventually succeed with that 1996 TV movie. Problem with Dimensions in Time is, is it doesn't succeed as a Doctor Who story. I also don't think it succeeds as a comedy sketch. I I don't think it knows what it wants to be. And yet down the line, we will get children in need and comic relief sketches that do get it right. Curse of Fatal Death with Rowan Atkinson for comic relief. Oh, that's what... So when you said about doing this, that's what I thought we were going to do. I thought, oh, I love that. I love that. It's so funny. Oh, no. Oh, we're doing this one, huh? As I said to you in that message last night, suffering is art. (laughs) Art is suffering. But this did do remarkably well for ratings. It did help elevate the public profile for better or for worse for Doctor Who in its anniversary year. But just to go over what happened in 1993, like to build up for the Doctor Who anniversary year, uh, the Virgin New Adventures, which I mentioned earlier, Uh, They went to a monthly release schedule. They were originally, I think, bi-monthly, but for the anniversary year, they went up to monthly. The BBC started repeating classic series again. Genesis of the Daleks was shown in 1993. I think that's the first time I would have seen Doctor Who, because I think 
at the time they were doing like uh, Stingray, Thunderbirds on the same time slot. And they got rid of the Stingray, Thunderbirds, uh, Captain Scarlet, whatever was that being shown at that time. And that's what they replaced with Doctor Who. And I remember watching that with my dad. Uh, they released the 25th anniversary story, Silver Nemesis, on video uh, in an extended form with a making of documentary. There was lots of videos coming out with the 30th anniversary logo on it. There was lots of things being released. I've still got a 30th anniversary mug downstairs, an original. That's cool. We mentioned John Pertwee. He had the BBC Five radio drama back before BBC Five was news and sports when it was original content. Mm -hmm. The Paradise of Death, that was broadcast in August. There was also a documentary produced for BBC Radio. Uh, I think it went out on BBC Radio 2. The Dark Dimension we've covered, it never happened. It was meant to be a BBC Enterprises, BBC Video thing. But for at least the first six months of 1993, that was something that was happening. And at around the same time that this went out, there was legitimately one of my favourite Doctor Who documentaries ever made that was broadcast called 30 Years in the TARDIS, which was directed and produced by a guy called Kevin John Davis, who also worked on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a whole bunch of other stuff. But he didn't just interview talking heads. They recreated scenes. They rolled Daleks across Westminster Bridge. They recreated scenes on the London Underground or around the London Underground from the Patrick Troughton era with a newspaper seller who was kind of covered in cobwebs and died. Interestingly, that person was Adrian Rigglesford. <laughs> Look at that, linking back. And then that was released itself the next year as more than 30 years in the TARDIS. And we got more repeats. And so there was definitely a lot of things out there that showed that one, the BBC, at least from a marketing point of view, still cared about Doctor Who, but mm. also by the public consumption, the public still cared about Doctor Who. Now here we are, 30 years later, and almost all of Doctor Who is now available online for free and on your TV for free if you're in the UK. Disney are now co-producing or helping fund new episodes of Doctor Who. We have a three-part anniversary special that is due to start broadcasting in a couple of weeks time it's a pretty good time to be a doctor who fan and looking back at 1993 has really made me appreciate how good a time it is to be a doctor who fan because man in 1993 we feasted on scraps mm. i think that as a sort of latter a later doctor who fan um i think that actually you look at those sylvester mccoy years especially and you look at the years that we've had since like there's been recent doctors that people have slammed and i especially like peter capaldi peter capaldi i loved peter capaldi i really enjoyed him as the doctor and i in fact really enjoyed um especially that final series with him i i really enjoyed that yet i hear doctor who fans and fair enough i think that you could say this for wrestling being a massive star wars fan as you know lots of you will know that i am doctor who fandoms uh, fandoms ruining everything and it is that element of like wrestling wrestling's another one that we could put into that context as a wrestling fan like we sit there and moan about the product yet if we look back let's say 30 years on the product oh my god we, we should be this is a this is a golden era and I think that's the same for Doctor Who as well I'm excited for Doctor Who at this present moment in time I've got a son that literally uh, the first 10 years ago 10 years ago I sat down there's pictures of me with Frankie with this Doctor Who this TARDIS hat he had this little TARDIS hat on it and it went over his ears 
and we were watching uh, the uh, the 50th anniversary special, the uh, Day of the Doctor. And that is an episode like we've got it on DVD. He still watches it to this day. M- Matt Smith is his doctor. You know, we uh, the amount of the amount of times I've seen the Matt Smith series is unbelievable. But yeah, to to have that now that we're both getting excited for this. You know, obviously David Tennant is a huge part of that finishing off the the storyline there. I think that it's it's really exciting to be go back into this. But that will about wrap up our time with the Doctor for now. And as you mentioned, that 1996 TV movie will be floating around in our wheelhouse for a while yet. And who knows, as we are now expanding our time period that we're covering, we might cross paths with the reboot or maybe even some of the classic series as time goes on. However, whilst we are leaving Doctor Who behind, there is another component of this episode that we are not quite done with yet. We are working on a number of things for December for Under Consultation, but one of those episodes will be a Christmas special on Noel's house party. 1996. I'm not going to tell you who's on, on this episode, but it's a who's who of the... Who's who? Uh, of the 90s. I've done it again. we got to stop doing this joke. <laughs> I, I'm so looking forward to this. I, like, next week we aren't recording, and that is where I've got scheduled in first and second notes on, on Noel's house party. I can't wait. I'm so busted for it. But until we delve into Crinkly Bottom, that will <laughs> wrap things up. Thank you so, so much for listening, for your continued support as we stagger towards this brave new world. If you would like to get in touch with us, if you would like to tell us your thoughts on Dimensions in Time or Doctor Who on this anniversary year, you can do so by emailing us feedback at underconsultation.com or finding us on Twitter at underconsolepod or on threads and Instagram at under.console. And if you want to chat to us and like-minded folk in the way of anything retro, then come along to the Discord. You'll find the link in the notes below. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, which really at such a tumultuous time, both for the podcast and in the greater world, we really do appreciate. <laughs> Thank you. you can do so over on our Patreon, where at the £5 level, you will be getting new episodes up to one week early and ad-free. And if you support us at the £10 level, you will get your name read out alongside these fine folk here. We've got Tom Dylan McEvoy, Gordon Aiken, Andrew Greenwood, Joe McGonagall, Selena BN, I Am Cheadle, Ian Williams, Arcadia Wild Bill, Tom S, Riss Wynn, Chrissy Two Sticks, Link Campbell, Gordon Brandt, Xander Thole, Super Sexy Dave Fisher, Jamie Smith, David Palmer, Matty Boo, Harriet Manga Girl, Simon, Nick Lebrecht, Sean Dunn, Mark A, Gordon Dempster, Will C, and Misha. And for those at the £10 level, we are adding loads of extra bits and pieces like we are doing a community chat over on Zoom uh, once a month, as well as we're going to be adding in this brave new world, lots of added extras in for those people that are supporting us. So, ladies and gentlemen, we are done with Doctor Who. However, not with Noel's house party. We'll see you all very, very soon. Take care, everyone. Good night. Good night.